The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm standing in a little triangular park around the corner from Victoria Station. It's called Grosvenor Square, and the scene here is just like hundreds playing out across London. Red buses and taxis are whizzing past. Tourists are scrolling on their smartphones or dragging suitcases. The only real distinguishing feature is a sculpture, bronze and striking, sitting in the middle of the park. It has two figures. One is a lioness lean and poised, springing through the air with its mouth open. The other, an antelope, face full of determination, trying to scramble away. The kill looks all but certain to happen. It's a scene that's familiar to a man at the very centre of the Russia saga. A man Donald Trump blames more than any other for the scandal that engulfed his presidency. In the summer and autumn of 2016, That man passed near this sculpture every time he came into the office. Every day, as he secretly worked inside the building opposite me, on allegations about Trump so explosive, they would soon be known the world over. At the time, nobody knew his name. As a former British spy, that was how he liked it. But they do now. His name is Christopher Steele. I'm Ben Riley-Smith, The Daily Telegraph's US editor, and this is Crossfire. Episode 2, The Dossier. Do you remember the moment the Steele dossier dropped? I think it's a disgrace that information would be let out. Uh, I saw the information, I read the information outside of that meeting. Uh, It's all fake news, it's phony stuff, it didn't happen. For me, I was back in London when it happened, January 10th, 2017, after Trump was elected, but before he took office. I remember pulling up the document on my iPhone while on the underground, turning it sideways and scrolling through, page by page, jaw gradually dropping. Amid the blitz of unfamiliar names, anonymous sources, clunky formatting style, and random yellow highlighter marks, was a picture that was both vivid and scandalous secret meetings between Trump campaign figures and Russians, a conspiracy of cooperation to tilt the election, talk of pro-Russian decisions once in the White House, and of course, the one everyone remembers, the allegation that the Kremlin had video footage of an incident where Trump got prostitutes to urinate on a bed once slept in by Barack Obama. In other words, compromise, perfect blackmail material. These were explosive claims because the the dossier was... Amelia Thompson-DeVoe, a reporter for the political website 538, also recalls vividly that moment and Trump's furious reaction. And these are extremely serious claims to have lodged against the president of the United States. And it was also, you know, I think Steele himself said that this is kind of raw intelligence and these are leads that would be followed up on. And so the claims themselves were felt like they needed to be substantiated, I think. And there was there was controversy about, you know, is this really true? Can this be trusted? If it is true, it's very serious. But on the other hand, a lot of the president's allies, I think, saw it as um, a clear attempt to smear him. And Trump himself, I mean, there was that press conference he held the day after that he was clearly absolutely livid. I think he compared it to something that would happen in Nazi Germany and he 
accuse the intelligence services of somehow being involved and working against him. I mean, that anger has carried on throughout his presidency towards Steele and the dossier. It has. And I mean, the Steele dossier has had this incredibly long life in the world of conservative conspiracy theories. I mean, I got even got a brief mention um, during the first day of the impeachment hearing. So this is something that's definitely still percolating among people who um, support the president and are inclined to sort of see this as as part of a much bigger web of um, attempts to, to take him down. This episode, I don't want to focus on the claims. So much has been written and said about them, not least by the FBI, who investigated them deeply, that there's not really much to add. We'll touch on them, but for now, here's a simplistic summary. Some bits proved true, some bits were wrong. Many others were never corroborated at all, not least the Trump hotel room claims, which he's always denied. What I want to try and unpack, to understand, is the Brit at the centre of all this, Christopher Steele, a Yemeni-born Cambridge graduate, an undercover spy for MI6, a private consultant trying to cash in, the man who wanted to stop Trump. What drove his actions? Why did he raise the alarm? Was he a bad actor, spreading smears about a candidate he hated? or a patriot doing his duty. A good place to start is with Graham Davies. The two words that I would describe Christopher Steele with more than anything else are understated and deeply loyal. Davies met Steele at Cambridge University in the 1980s. They're friends to this day. He's somebody who, in the way that he very much did at university, listens far more then he tries to talk. He doesn't try to dominate a conversation. Steele's route to Cambridge was unusual. Born in Aden, the Yemeni capital, he'd spent part of his childhood abroad, thanks to his dad's military job as a meteorologist. His family's roots were in Welsh coal mining, but his upbringing was quite middle class. His smarts won him a place to study at Cambridge's Girton College. Steele and Davies bonded over politics. Steele was a lefty, a Labour supporter and, according to one book about prominent graduates, a confirmed socialist. Both men would become presidents of the Cambridge Union, its debating society. Incidentally, the year Steele had the post, the Oxford Union, their big rival, was headed up by one Boris Johnson. Anyway, Steele stood out, Davis says, for his lack of pomposity. Well, so many people in the Cambridge Union society, and I have to include myself in this, we say a lot... We're quite loud, love to be the centre of attention. It's just the mark of the beast. One of the reasons that Chris stood out is that he's always been very understated, relatively quiet, not the sort of person who tries to dominate the centre of the room. He'll listen to you very courteously, very sympathetically, and analyse what you say, and then bounce back into the conversation. But he's somebody who, no matter what, you can always rely on. And overall, he does a lot more thinking than he does talking. And I think that characteristic has carried him through the rest of his life. From Cambridge, Steele briefly considered becoming a journalist before spotting a newspaper advert calling for English speakers interested in jobs overseas. He responded. The employer, it turned out, was a secret intelligence service. 
otherwise known as MI6. Soon, he was on the inside, being trained up as a Russia expert. His first post was in Moscow, where he got a taste for the ways of the KGB, the notorious Soviet spy outfit. Steele told friends about how they would play dopey mind games, like once removing his wife's posh shoes before a diplomatic dinner. The message was clear. He was being watched. The time, it was the early 1990s, also gave Steele a front row seat on one of the most seismic moments of the last half century, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Compatriots, due to the situation which has evolved as a result of the formation of the Commonwealth of Independent States, I hereby discontinue my activities at the post of President of the USSR. What must it have been like, seeing it all unravel? The old enemy, self-combusting. The disintegration of communism. The end of history. It must have felt like victory. Steele eventually rose to head up MI6's Russia desk, tackling head-on a new assertiveness under Vladimir Putin, of whom he became deeply suspicious. By 2009, Steele and a fellow spook Christopher Burroughs were ready for a change. They left and set up All This Business Intelligence, a private research outfit. Time to make money and enjoy the quiet life. That plan worked until the summer of 2016, when this guy came along. My name is Glenn Simpson, and I am the founder of Fusion GPS. You can't understand steel without understanding Simpson and Fusion. I am a career-long investigative journalist who left the business in 2009 to start a business intelligence firm. And we do all sorts of investigative work, research for law firms and corporations. And uh, in recent years, we've been engaged twice to work on presidential campaigns to look into the business backgrounds of candidates running for president. For three years, Simpson kept near total silence on the Russian saga. Amid a blizzard of investigations, both from Congress and the FBI, he's kept his head down. But he agreed to talk in December. A book he co-wrote with a fusion partner all about it, called Crime in Progress, had just been published. They wanted their side of the story to be heard. Fusion had been investigating Trump, first for a Republican who wanted to stop him, them for a law firm helping Hillary Clinton. The trail had winded through Trump's property empires, his bankruptcy, his alleged ties to the mafia, but it kept on leading to Russia. They needed an expert to help. Simpson, a former Wall Street Journal reporter, knew who to turn to. He'd met Steele years earlier and they shared a fascination with Russia. I asked him to describe Steele. Chris is a very engaging, witty person. Um, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of Russia and Russians, Russian politicians, Russian businessmen. Um, he has a somewhat messianic streak that I share when it comes to talking about Russia and the threat that Russia poses to the West. He's quite passionate on this subject, um, as am I. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we uh, became friends and business associates was because we had a very similar view of the emerging threat from Russia to our own countries. And he was also trusted by the FBI in terms of the work he does. 
Yes. When I met Chris, I was not aware that he had a longstanding relationship with the FBI. It certainly didn't surprise me, but it gradually became clear to me over the years that we worked together and became friends that he was well-regarded and well-known to U.S. law enforcement and intelligence officials, including top officials at the Justice Department, the FBI, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the State Department. And can you talk me through why you guys decided to go to him for some information about Trump and Russia? We eventually came to Chris after having exhausted our own sort of methods and techniques for gathering information. We started looking at Trump's relationship to certain uh, individuals with the Russian background early on in our investigation in the fall of 2015. And after, oh, you know, almost nine months of looking at this question and becoming increasingly concerned that there was something here that we didn't understand that looked significant, we decided to turn to Orbis Business Intelligence in London. The original brief, Simpson says, was pretty simple. Why does Trump keep going to Russia, yet never comes back with a business deal? It was a mystery they couldn't understand. Steele agreed. They didn't know much about Trump. He had actually met his daughter Ivanka once, and was aware of The Apprentice. But that was about it. Can you walk us through as much as you can how Steele gathers his information and the sources that he used? Because I know at one point he lays out to you this kind of source map and he has a fair amount of detail that's in the public domain about who the sources are. The general method that Chris uses is to work with the diaspora. Not necessarily the Russian diaspora, but the diaspora of the former Soviet Union. He engages with people who in turn chat with their associates, go to Russia, see what's going on. Russia is not the old totalitarian society that people might think it is. It's a very chatty place. Um, Because of the media controls, people tend to share information orally. It's sort of the way the news gets transmitted because a lot of the news isn't in the newspapers. So It's not actually that hard to go and speak with prominent businessmen or mid-level government officials and find out things um, just by chatting. What Steele got back from his sources and sub-sources was shocking. Details of an alleged Trump campaign Kremlin conspiracy to tilt the election. He would spell it all out in 17 explosive memos sent back to Fusion. What would become known as the dossier. Each one was written in the way Steele would construct his MI6 briefings, headed Company Intelligence Report 2016, and then numbered. A fundamental question faced Steele. What the hell should he do with this information? What would you do? Imagine it for a second. You've discovered shocking claims about one of the two people who could become the most powerful politician on Earth. Steele knew according to friends. Him and Burroughs had always said if they found anything pertinent to national security, they would pass it on to the authorities. So he did that. He reached out to an FBI contact and gave them the memos. Now the Americans were in the know. I'm uh, Jim Baker. I'm the director of national security and cybersecurity at the R Street Institute and the former general counsel of the FBI. If you want to know what the FBI thought of the Steele dossier, you want to talk to Baker. He was the Bureau's top lawyer at the time, one of the few people read in 
to the Russia investigation. Do you remember when you first became aware of the Steele dossier as it's known now and what your thinking was when you were handed these pretty explosive allegations? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't remember the exact date when I uh, first learned about the dossier, but I immediately thought this is a lot of material that it was consistent with what everybody else was thinking. It's a lot of material. There are a lot of significant allegations here, and we need to undertake a serious effort to vet this. Can you just say how that process works? What does vetting something like the Steele dossier mean? So without going into too much details, because I don't want to disclose exactly what the FBI does in, in these kind of circumstances, you, you try to use a variety of methods to determine whether there is some other source of information that might validate the information coming from the source. And that can come from a variety of different things. Open source information sometimes, although that's tricky because then the source could have gotten the information from the open source as well, right? So you have to be wary of that. But you try to look through previously collected bits of information that you might have from other hu sensitive human sources, from intelligence collection, from data that might be available, such as if somebody said a phone call took place on a particular date, well, do we have a record of that? Is it possible to get a record of that to try to confirm that a phone call took place? You can look at if somebody says they took a trip or someone took a trip, can you obtain travel records that might corroborate that? And so on and so on. The point, though, was clear. It is a long, laborious, painstaking process. Trying to stand up Steele's claims took time. Time they didn't have. The election was rapidly approaching. All the while, Steele was getting increasingly animated and agitated. Steele and Fusion began to take matters into their own hands by briefing journalists. They held sit-downs with US reporters in Washington. Steele was not unaware of the risks. Someone familiar with his thinking told me he genuinely feared assassination during those DC trips. If the Russians knew about his memos, the thinking went, then there was incentive to keep him quiet. He put the likelihood at 5%. Not high, but high enough. Steele grew angry with the FBI's silence about the Trump probe and became apoplectic when FBI Director James Comey publicly reopened the Hillary Clinton email case. He asked Simpson, is maintaining the appearance of impartiality in this election so important to you Americans that you're willing to elect a Russian asset? And then it came. November 8th, 2016, election day, and Steele's worst nightmare. There was an almost surreal quality to Donald Trump's victory. A billionaire businessman turned champion of the working people, sweeping to power, stunning the nation and the world. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. Uh, last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. I hope that he will be a successful president for all Americans. Trump was heading to the White House. President Trump. Steele was appalled. So he turned to someone he knew and trusted, his friend Sir Andrew Wood. Sir Andrew had been Britain's ambassador to Moscow when Steele was in MI6, and Steele had consulted him about the dossier before the election. Sir Andrew never read it, wanting a degree of deniability. 
but reassured Steele about going to the FBI. Now, though, everything had changed. Election Day itself, you know this information Christopher has got. Donald Trump unexpectedly wins it. What was your reaction to that? Well, this is a decent podcast, so I don't think I'd be able to say. <laughs> Without explosives, what was your reaction? This is dangerous. This is really dangerous. And were you thinking... If it were true that the future president of the United States was subject to useful blackmail from a power which is inherently antagonistic towards the United States and to the Great Great Britain and other European countries as well, then that is something to worry about. Sitting in Sir Andrew's home in Islington, North London, the pair cooked up a plan. Steele had already made one decision. He would inform the British. And soon the heads of MI5 and MI6 would be read in, well before even Mr Trump himself knew of the claims. But the pair made another choice. If the FBI wasn't acting on the allegations, it was time to widen the circle in the US. Sir Andrew flew to a security conference in Canada and sought out the one man they thought could help, John McCain, the Republican senator and fierce Trump critic. I told him that this document existed, that it needed verification. It wasn't intended for publication, obviously, that I thought he should know of it. I was sure if he wished to see it, it could be possible for him to, to get hold of it. And what was his reaction? He said, first, I'd like to just think about that, and then uh, asked me to come back again, possibly the next day or, or later that afternoon, I don't remember which. And he said, thank you for telling me this. He complimented me on my decision to do so, which was nice of him, especially from a man like that, that he would make arrangements to, to get hold of the document, which he did. What happens next is like a scene straight from a Le Carre novel. Just after Thanksgiving, McCain's aide catches an overnight flight to London Heathrow. Touching down, bleary-eyed, he follows the instructions given and texts an unknown number. The response is quick. Look for a man with a blue coat holding the Financial Times. Its pink colour would be easy to spot. The man is Steele, who takes the aide to his Farnham home for a briefing. That afternoon, the aide is flying back home, having spent just eight hours in Britain. The dossier was now with Trump's Republican critics. Within weeks, it would be leaked to journalists and splashed at the top of the BuzzFeed website. The secret was out. Three years on, the view of Steele and his dossier is as polarised as ever. Trump has tweeted more than 50 times about them, seeing Steele's claim as the original sin, a garbage document that invalidates the whole Russia investigation. Steele himself is defiant, insisting his memos were raw intelligence, never meant for public consumption, and noting some claims, like the Kremlin's election meddling, were spot on. A recent FBI review painted a nuanced picture. The Bureau 
couldn't verify the whole dossier and spoke to one of Steele's sources who said he'd exaggerated the findings. But it also concluded that Steele wasn't a vehicle for Russian disinformation, as Trump's allies claimed, and was trusted by the FBI. Ultimately, I think the real question comes down to motive. It's that one I posed earlier. What would you do? If you found out the same, how would you act? It's the same question that career US officials faced when they saw Trump's behaviour towards Ukraine. They spoke up. Who knows, it could happen again before the election is out. Wouldn't you want that person to raise the flag rather than stay silent? Graham Davies, who's known Steele most of his life, is in no doubt. His friend acted honourably. He is somebody that is so imbued with analytical integrity that I just can't imagine him shifting something or distorting something so that it favours a particular agenda. For him, professionalism trumps everything else. Personally, knowing them as I do, I actually find that allegation quite comically ludicrous. It's just not in his DNA. For Steele, the answer is even simpler. According to one who knows his mind, when asked about the role he played before the election, the former spy expresses no regret. Instead, he responds with four words. I did my duty. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Crossfire from The Telegraph. Subscribe to this feed to make sure you don't miss it. And in the meantime, you can read more about this story, including details that we just couldn't fit in, at telegraph.co.uk forward slash crossfire. Next week on Crossfire. There was this big question of, was there something more behind this meeting? Was this actually evidence of some kind of coordination? What information was exchanged there? Or was it this meeting with a lot of hype and setup that ultimately came to nothing? And I noticed Donald Trump had arrived and he was at the other end of the lobby. And this bellowing voice said, look who it is, the richest family in Russia have come to visit me. <laughs>